This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 33, Brian Leach. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches to share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim talks with NHL legend and three-time Olympian, Brian Leach. One of the biggest things he told me is you have to be consistent. You have to be consistent in your approach uh, to your teammates and uh, consistent in your effort out on the ice. And uh, you can't have ups and downs as a leader of the team because the team uh, feeds off of that. With more than 20 years of professional and Olympic hockey experience, Brian credits his father for having taught him how to use what values hockey instilled in him in his life. Drawing on those same values and philosophies taught to him by his father, coaches, and teammates, Brian, now a youth coach, works hard to inspire his own youth athletes with consistent leadership. Brian, I want to start off by introducing you to our audience. Brian Leach grew up in Connecticut, where he excelled both in baseball and hockey in high school. In 1986, he was drafted by the Rangers with their first-round pick. Before joining the Rangers, he played hockey at Boston College, where he was named an All-American defenseman. Brian played on the 1988 U.S. Olympic team and began his career with the Rangers that same year. He scored a rookie defenseman record 23 goals, winning the Calder Trophy awarded to the NHL Rookie of the Year. In 1992, he became the fifth defenseman in history to record 100 points in a season and was awarded the Norris Trophy, given to the NHL's top defensive player. In 94, his 24 goals scored during the regular season helped the Rangers go on to win the Stanley Cup for the first time in 54 years. That was a, a big day. Brian was awarded the Conn Smith Trophy given to the player most valuable to his team during the Stanley Cup playoffs. He served as Rangers captain from 1997 to 2000, winning the Norris Trophy again in 1997. He played for the U.S. ice hockey team at the 2002 Winter Olympics, winning a silver medal in Salt Lake City. While playing for the Boston Bruins during the 2005-2006 season, he scored his 1,000th career point. In 2007, Brian announced his retirement, ending an impressive 18-year NHL career. In 2008, the Rangers retired Brian's number two jersey, and Brian was inducted into the United States Ice Hockey Hall of Fame in Denver. In 2009, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, in, I believe in Toronto. And Brian, uh, thanks for joining our responsible sports audience and me today. Good to be here. Hey, I think there was a mistake there. You, you actually were, um, were born in uh, Texas, weren't you? Corpus Christi, Texas, correct. And you moved to Connecticut when you were how old? Probably about uh, five years old. We moved around. My dad was in the service in the Navy at that time, so I was born in a naval base. And, but I basically grew up in Connecticut since I was about five years old, six years old. So I, I've read that when you were growing up, you played hockey in a rink that your dad owned, and he was quite a hockey player himself. He was an All-American at Boston College, and, uh, but he didn't start skating on uh, a team until he was in high school. He just played pond hockey with his friends, and he noticed that these guys were playing. Uh, he, they weren't much better than him, so he tried out for the high school team and made it, and then... Uh, 
ended up getting a scholarship to college, the Boston College, and then worked hard and made himself into an All-American there. But he became, uh, after he left the service and they flew for Pan Am for a little bit, he ended up being the first manager of uh, Skating Center in Connecticut. So that's how we ended up there. Is he became the uh, manager of the rink. Do you think in today's world a kid could start playing competitive hockey in high school and still go on to the kind of greatness your dad had? I think it would be extremely difficult, to be honest with you. Skating is such a difficult thing to just pick up regardless of what type of athlete you are. I think in some other sports you might be able to do that, but I think hockey, uh, skating is something that needs to be learned at least uh, that part of it at a younger age. Yeah. What was it like growing up, um, you know, with your dad and, and you both having a passion for hockey? Was that, that a good thing? Uh, it was good for me. There was no question about it because um, he was there all the time. He never really wanted to be uh, the head coach of uh, my teams. He always wanted to be assistant coach so he could just help with the practices. Uh, he didn't have to worry about the kids' ice time and some of the, uh, the uh, quote politics that goes on in some of the youth sports and um, and yet he loved being a part of it he loved being on the ice he refereed um, for youth hockey games and up through high school games you know in other leagues and uh, it was fun for me but there was never any pressure there was never any uh, pushing me into playing hockey you know except during hockey season I played baseball we went camping in the summer there was uh, not a lot of extra hockey, even though we both enjoyed it so much. So it was great for me. You know, um, it seems like a lot of sports parents are kind of overbearing, and I wonder if, you know, that their kids' success is so important to them. I wonder if the fact that your dad was such an accomplished hockey player, hockey player himself, that that helped him, you know, kind of turn you loose. I think that and, you know, uh, working-wise, he had to work a lot of hours, and he was busy. And so when he had his weekends free, it was uh, relaxing for him to be a part of his kids' lives and to do what made them happy. And I think that's where he got his kind of his break from his work weeks and from all the hours he was putting in as being able to spend time with his family. And I think he knew that if his kids were unhappy, it was going to just ruin his free time and what he was looking forward to. So I think it was to support us, get us where we wanted, you know, reinforce the ideas of doing your best out there and being a good teammate, but yet uh, making sure that we enjoyed it along the way. Boy, I wish uh, I wish every athlete in the country could have a dad like your dad. Well, I was fortunate, there's no question about it. He had the biggest influence on me throughout uh, up to when I became professional. There's no question about it. Yeah, you mentioned baseball. Um, I was intrigued to read that you had a 90-mile-an-hour fastball in high school, um, and you uh, you were on a state championship team. Um, did you feel any pressure from coaches to either choose baseball or hockey when you were younger? I remember in high school that I there was an all-star team of uh, for hockey, Um, being put together from the Connecticut area, and we were going to go play a tournament um, up in Massachusetts against some good teams, and it was during baseball season, and I wanted to go play in this. And it was during our school break, and um, I had told the coach I was going to miss 
um, a couple games to go play in this, and he was not happy about that. And it was the first time I had run into a conflict and where a coach was not happy about the decision I made. And he said, well, you're going to have to sit out some games when you come back. If you And I just looked at him and nodded my head and and went and played the games. And I was glad I went to the, the hockey tournament and I had fun and it was exciting. I came back and he sat me out in uh, a game and I guess he was expecting more of a response of me being upset and disappointed, but I knew the consequences of what I was doing. And so that the suspension went down to one game after I got back because he realized I was doing what I wanted and that this was still just high school sports and I was back in the lineup and uh, playing. But he brought that story up a lot after I became a professional hockey player and looked back on it and said, I don't know why I was so upset. I just hadn't seen a guy that, uh, you know, could leave in the middle of the year and miss two games like that. It upset me more than it upset him. And once I realized that, I I, uh, decided I should put him back in there. Well, credit to him for for realizing that. Yeah, I think so, too. You know, for him to... uh, And he realized that I was, you know, that I enjoyed playing baseball. And whenever I was... It wasn't like I had missed games before. I showed up late, and I was a good teammate. And so I think it, it dawned on him too that he might have been uh, focusing a little bit too hard on the uh, some side parts of it, as opposed to uh, just the kids playing and, and enjoying it. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, rather than uh, joining the Rangers right away when you drafted, you played a year of college hockey at Boston College. Um, talk about that decision. What what went into that, and what memories do you have now? Are you glad you spent a year at Boston College? Yeah, it was a very easy decision for me. I grew up in Connecticut, like I said, playing hockey through public schools uh, all the way up through high school my sophomore year, and then our rink closed in town, and I transferred to a prep school for better academics and better athletics and with the hope that maybe I could get a scholarship to college because the NHL and everything um, being drafted, everything seems uh, not reachable. Um, you know, there weren't, there weren't kids from Connecticut that were playing in the NHL. There, there wasn't people to compare myself to that I could say, you know, yeah, I, could, I played as well as him at this stage. So it was a bit of a fantasy, anything further ahead. And it wasn't until I started to play in some junior national uh, teams when I was 16 and 17 for the U.S., um, and you start hearing about uh, your name coming up to be drafted when you're 18, um, that I really started to think about the NHL and maybe that there would be uh, an opportunity to play there. But before that, I just it, w- it wasn't something that it even crossed my mind. So when I did get drafted after my high school year just mentally um i i didn't believe that i was ready to go play against men and against players that i looked up to so much and uh physically i i assumed that i wasn't ready so there was just so much unknown so much uncertainty that um my focus was to once i got that scholarship to college was to go to college and do the best i could there and hopefully at some point i'd be ready to make that jump uh, to the NHL, but uh, it never even crossed my mind ahead of time. I I felt like a young kid 
you know, and the dream was getting closer, and I certainly wasn't ready for it then. What are you? Are you glad you did have that time at BC? Oh, it was great. It was great. I still have uh, most of my friends to this day are from um, my year there, and then even after the Olympics uh, in '88, and once we didn't make the playoffs in the Rangers that year, and we'd get eliminated from playoffs in subsequent years, I'd go back and sleep in the dorm for the last couple of weeks of school, and uh, I'd sleep on a couch and hang out, and then I'd summer together with uh, guys from school, and we'd you know, rent a place and get odd jobs or I guess I didn't have to get a job at those point that point. I was just working on my conditioning um, and all that. But still to this day, my uh, best friends are from my experiences with Boston College. That's great. You know, you're uh, one of the top defensemen of all time in NHL. Uh, All-star game uh, appointee 10 times. Uh, obviously, you had some talent, but what did you do to to hone the skills that made you such a successful player? Well, it was kind of a gradual process, and I was uh, kind of as I matured and started to play uh, in the NHL, I, I, I kind of hit what I like to call the old school versus the new school of conditioning and training, is that the, the uh, education and the knowledge the players started to receive about training your body and uh, the correct ways to do it um, was all being introduced um, during the late 80s to late 90s, and I got to witness that, whereas you used to go to training camp um, to get into shape. Uh, it quickly turned into everybody coming into camp in top shape, and you were ready to go right from the start. And I, That education kind of started for me at Boston College, got ramped up, throughout the Olympic training process and then, um, you know, certainly started each year in the NHL. And I'd say after about three or four years in the NHL, everybody was on board with taking care of your body and, you know, training the right way and rest and diet. And uh, I was I was lucky to get that um, as the education increased. And so I did all of that uh, right along with it till it just becomes natural. You look back at it and think that uh, everybody's doing the same thing, but uh, everyone's not. It's the work you put into it, and it's the discipline you have in being able to follow your programs. And um, I, I always wanted to make sure that I wasn't shorting myself on the conditioning side, and I think that always helped me be able to to play well and to be able to recover and to be able to go back out and perform at a high level. You know, there's, uh, you're the second player in NHL history to win the Calder, the Norris, and the Conn Smith Trophy. The only other player to achieve this was Bobby Orr. Um, you, know, you talked about conditioning. What do you, what do you think, uh, did you spend uh, time in the offseason working on your skills? How, what, what, what just made you so successful, you think? Um, in the off season, basically I would just go to the gym or I would go, uh, conditioning wise for uh, cardio. I would rollerblade, I would ride the bike, I would run and, um, do stationary bikes for my cardio, try and mix it up to keep it interesting. And the weather was nicer so I could get outside. And then, uh, for, for strength training, I knew I would never be stronger than most of the guys that I was playing against. 
Um, so the weights I did were more for repetitions and for flexibility um, so that when my strength was my skating and my passing and my ability to, to, uh, to recover. And so my strength training was, was not based on trying to put on weight and put on mass. It was just to stay strong and stay flexible and to make sure I was ready to go. So it was more circuit training and repetition training. Um, but then I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do a lot of skating in the off season. I wouldn't start getting back on the ice till about three weeks before training camp, and I'd skate probably five days um, a week for those three weeks, and then you'd have three and a half weeks of training camp. And so after about six and a half weeks of skating, I'd be ready for the season to start. Talk about what the keys were. I mean, as a defensive. Uh, player, you were just incredibly uh, productive offensively. What what are the keys to being able to to score as a defenseman? Well, you need to be with good players, no question about it. You need to have a coach that um, embraces you being involved in the offense, and I was lucky to have coaches that did that. Um, they made sure to tell my teammates that if I was if I had the puck and I was ahead of them, that someone's responsibility was to cover my position. And it was later in my career that uh, coaches stopped doing that. They didn't think the risk was worth the reward. And so then uh, the points started to go down because I was playing within a system. But you need to, and you need to be, it has to be part of a team concept and it has to be uh, with good players because. Yeah, you can't do it by yourself. That's the the way the game is. And my strengths were being able to read the play and anticipate, and to be able to skate and pass. And so I was able to put myself in those situations. But uh, only if my teammates were expecting it, and only if they knew that it was part of the game plan. So for the most of my career, that was uh, that was the story. Is there any advantage for defensemen coming? You know, coming forward with the puck, uh, you know, maybe the the goalie, the, the defenseman on the other team, not uh, being as familiar with you. Is there any advantage to that? Oh, well, everything nowadays is the scouting is uh, so comprehensive, and the video uh, work in the NHL, and um, that there's not a lot of surprises out there, even for a player that you know, moves up from uh, the minor leagues or comes from juniors or college. And um, there's there's information on those players all the time. And uh, the game's pretty simple. You know, it's not that complicated. It's just that players that um, are talented enough and work hard enough are able to put themselves in that position more often than not that one of them they're going to be successful are, and that's how you get on the score sheet. But... I don't think there's a lot of uh, difference with uh, being able to surprise somebody um, anymore. Yeah. Um, you were a captain of the Rangers from 97 to 2000. Um, how, did you, how did you think about being a captain? What did you do to, to be a good captain? Well, I was lucky. Mark Messier was on our team um, I guess it was six years before that or five years before that. And uh, he's the best leader I've ever seen. And uh, the ultimate team guy is, uh, I've never seen anyone like him. And uh, he didn't do anything in an outward, uh, outwardly showy way of 
saying this is my team, it's this way or the highway. And it was all about um, bringing everyone together and doing things as a group and sacrificing for your teammates. And it was amazing how excited he was for guys that scored, you know, while he was on the ice, it seemed like he had scored that goal and he had the big grin and he'd run over and jump on the guy. And um, just the way he was able to phrase his feelings uh, to the group um, was amazing. And, so he left to go to Vancouver for three years, and I assumed that spot um, during those years. And I remember one of the biggest things he told me is you have to be consistent. You have to be consistent in your approach uh, to your teammates and uh, consistent in your effort out on the ice. And uh, you can't have ups and downs as a leader of the team because the team uh, feeds off of that. And he said there are a lot of days he'd be at the rink and – or going to the rink, and they might we might be in a losing streak or something, but he'd have to get himself mentally ready as he walked in that door to be the same guy that he was when things were going well, and he'd go say hi to everybody, and you know get ready for that practice and go out and practice hard, and that's what always stuck in my head was that uh, consistency as an individual and that as a leader that people were gonna take their cue from you on you know, what type of mood the team should be in. And so those were, were two of the things that I remembered uh, action-wise. And then being on the ice in practice is it, you should be at the front of the line and you should be uh, one of the hardest workers out there each and every practice. So those were the, were the three things I always tried to, uh, to focus on. Well, that's that's uh, fantastic. You know, I, was, I, I just read an a analysis of... Um, <clears throat> The um, San Antonio Spurs, who are rolling through the NBA playoffs now, they're eight and zero at this point. Um, and they're talking about how Tim Duncan, when a teammate scores, he doesn't—he's not happy because they help the team. He's happy because it's like a friend of his has done well. And that's what I thought of when you talked about Messier. He was so excited when teammates would score. Um, that's just a great. What we talk about. With, with coaches, youth coaches, that uh, kids have an emotional tank, and if you fill that emotional tank, they're going to play better. And just imagine if one of the greatest players of all time, like Messier or you, um, you know, gets really excited when a teammate scores. That's got to be a big tank filler. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's great. And because of what, uh, how hard he plays and the, the, ways, the, the, uh, the example he would do out there, and then you're right to see him um, be so excited for others' success it is a tremendous feeling, and it does. It's uh, he's a guy that you get in line with very easily, and when he is leading, you follow, you know, without questions asked because of uh, the way he goes about his business. And then he ended up coming back to New York after those three years, and of course, uh, the press asked me, "Well, what are you going to do with the captaincy?" And I just started laughing. I said, "What do you think?" I said, even if Mark's not wearing a C, he's going to be the leader in that room, and of course, he's going to be the the captain again when he comes back. And and he did. Cool. Um, you know, you had the opportunity to play in two Olympic games. Um, was there a difference that you felt putting on a Team USA jersey as opposed to your NHL team jersey? Did that was there anything there? 
Well, there's definitely a difference. I was actually lucky to play in uh, three Olympic Games. That one in 88 was when we were still amateurs, and then I got to play in two as uh, NHL players when we were uh, when they had made that switch. But I, when I was playing in those junior national teams as 16, 17, and 18-year-old, um, it was it was very special. I had seen the 1980 uh, Olympic team and the game against the Russians. We had been in a a hockey tournament. Our Connecticut team was up in Massachusetts, and the uh, coaches and parents had all got us together in a hotel room to watch the showing of that game because it was tape delayed at that point, and they had heard that uh, we should all be watching that. So I just remember sitting there and watching that game and being with my teammates in a hotel, and every time the U.S. scored, we'd be jumping up and down and throwing pillows around the room so then to be able to to really only five six years later be able to be putting a jersey on and representing the U.S. and uh, it was very powerful and to be playing we we played in those junior national tournaments in Canada and once we're in Czechoslovakia and and in Finland, and you know, you're playing against other countries that you had seen in the Olympics, and wearing the uh, other jerseys and representing their countries, and it was tremendous, a tremendous feeling. And I had always hoped, as I was projecting my age and when the '88 Olympics were coming, that um, there was a, there was a chance I might be able to play on that, and it turned out to be so. And that was before you ever put an NHL jersey on, so it was it was a very powerful uh, experience representing your country. And so then, when you make it to the NHL, it's a it's a different feeling. It's it's uh, it's kind of a goal that seemed unreachable, but um, it's not quite the same as putting on the USA, even though it's a, a great accomplishment to make the NHL. Yep, yep. Um, you know we. Um we talk about responsible coaches uh, having two goals, winning on the scoreboard, but then using sports to help their kids learn life lessons. Did you have coaches that, that um, stood out in that regard that, that not only helped you as an athlete, but as a person? Um, you know, I, it was just to, to have my dad associate with all my teams you know, he's the one that imparted those lessons, and I didn't really have another coach that uh, that could fill that role because your dad is obviously the one involved in your life and so much. So I was lucky in that regard, but I did have a lot of coaches that uh, that were very good at doing something I try and do as a coach now and all these youth teams is to make it fun um, along with the, the learning process. And I did have coaches that made... Going to the rink, fun practices were enjoyable. You know, there was discipline there, but uh, we we had uh, our, our practices were were geared toward things that we enjoyed doing and and developing skills um, where it was fun for us. And um, that's I had a couple coaches like that in youth hockey and then into high school that uh, really made it enjoyable for me and. Um, there's no there's no way around saying that my dad wasn't the one that uh, you know took care of all the life lessons and the part of the team learning and then certainly Mark Messier when I became a, a professional. 
When when you look back on your hockey career, you know, is there one or two of those kind of lessons? I mean, you you've mentioned a lot from Mark, but in terms of you know, youth coaches uh, that might be listening to this, and there's going to be a lot of both coaches, parents, and athletes who will be listening to this interview. Um, any particular life lessons that, that you think that youth coaches really can help kids learn? Well, it's hard because I'm, I've been in this role now as a youth coach myself now for six years, and coaching my kids through youth hockey and youth baseball and helping out a little bit in soccer and um, so I, I kind of get my memories intermixed with what I'm trying to teach kids now because of what I've learned through all these uh, years. And, you know, before the season starts, I, I tell the kids, you know, there's three things that you're going to be expected to do here, and it's going to be to listen to your coaches, and it's going to be to be a, a good teammate and work hard out there, and to have fun. And then we talk about each thing as a group, you know, what's expected about being a good teammate, and that's being respectful in the locker room. And, you know, we're trying to cut out all this tape throwing at each other or throwing the ice, you know, because that just escalates into one kid getting picked on and explaining those type of things. And, you know, the work hard type of deal is it doesn't mean work hard part of the time. It's when you're doing a drill, you're only out there for an hour is, and so those experiences I try and impart in the kids, and it wasn't like I had a coach that did that to me where I can remember specifically, and yet there's, there's memories that I have of certain coaches that were more demanding in one area than another, and so I think I took a lot of my experiences of good coaches along the way and have tried to take the best of, of all of them and, and try and simplify it to what I think was important, and it's those those things that I try and uh, get across to the kids, and of course they're kids, and it's constant reinforcement and of trying to explain to them why you're doing certain things and why, if they're being reprimanded, um, what we expect of them and why we think this is incorrect. So um, that's what I try and do in all the sports, and then you know we ask the kids their input for what they like to do and and try and incorporate some of those drills in in every practice so that we know that they're they're having fun or there's something to look forward to as well as skill development. Well, I think that's really important. So many coaches I think feel like they have to they have to be in control all the time and just asking a kid like you say asking a kid for you know what kind of drills would you like to do that can that can be huge. You know, you said you said I kind of sum up what you said two things. One is demanding and fun like if as a coach if you can have really high expectations and and get that kind of effort from the kids and they're having fun at the same time boy that's going to be a team that's going to do well it is and it, it, it empowers the kids too and they every kid is at a different level in their development and yet you know when one kid is is working his hardest and one kid isn't and the kid that isn't may be further developed along and can do the drill um, a little better than than an individual that's um, that's not as good skill development wise, and yet I think as a coach, it's your job to demand just as much from them during the drills, or else you're starting to chip away at the rest of the the guys on the team because they see you're not consistent with their approach. The kids are smart enough to know what players are better on the team than others, and which kids are better skaters or who has a harder shot. 
and uh, they know if you're not demanding the same of each player that why should they listen to you or why should they put out that uh, that same effort so that's what we try and do for each kid is to learn them and learn their abilities and make sure that they're doing their best to maximize that um, when they're out there and when you give them that that responsibility to go do that drill you're expected to do it uh, as as best as you can yeah um brian one last um question that is um a lot of um responsible sports parents who will be listening to this are worried about their kids safety especially uh, contact sports like hockey and football what advice do you have for parents who are concerned about their kids safety I say to stay stay concerned and to stay vigilant and to um, stay on top of it because not every coach um, has the answers or not every coach is in position to um, be educated maybe enough as they should. And so as a parent, I think it is your responsibility to make sure your, your kid has the right equipment. Um, to make sure that you're happy um, with the coaching and the way he's being coached, and then to make sure you understand, especially when we're concerned with concussions, is to monitor your your child. If he tells you or she tells you that she banged her head or got hit a certain way and you notice a difference, always err on the side of caution. That's what I try and uh, tell our our parents when I'm coaching is that if there's anything that we see that we're unsure of, we're going to have your kid sit out. We'd rather him sit out and miss the rest of that game and miss a week of practice and find that everything's okay than find that he's having or she's having trouble, you know, three days down the road or 10 days down the road or something that we missed because there's so much youth sports and, um, you know, it's not like the NHL where you have team doctors everywhere. The coaches and the parents have to be on top of uh, monitoring their kids and then uh, give them the correct equipment and and uh, let them go have fun. But it's, it's always err on the side of caution and be concerned about your kids. It's your responsibility as a parent as well as the coaches to uh, make sure that these kids have a an enjoyable, rewarding experience without having to to go through uh, situations that are avoidable. Brian, uh, great, uh, great thoughts today. Really enjoyed this uh, our conversation, and I want to thank you for taking the time to share with me and all the people who are going to hear this podcast. Um, I think your insights are going to help lots of parents, coaches, and athletes out there. So, uh, thanks so much. No problem. You got it. To learn more about responsible sports including downloading valuable tools on how you can help youth athletes stay positive in youth sports, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music. Music.